0: Hello and welcome, welcome. How's everyone? Everybody get coffee? Everybody get a donut? What's your favorite donut? Scott, what's your favorite donut? Chocolate. Just like a plain chocolate? Just like a bar or a a round one? A big old, big old one? Oh, there, (laughs) I like it. Who else got a, oh, what'd you get? Glaze, you can't beat a glaze, right? Yeah, I can go maple or glaze. Yeah, it just depends on the day. Who who else got a donut? Nobody else. There's like 400. Richard, what'd you get? You got a glaze too. All right. Who else? Who got something besides a glaze? Mike, what'd you get? Buttermilk. That's a apple fritter. fritter. That's a meal and a half right there for sure. Enjoy your apple fritter. Hey, it's good to be back. Uh, My name is Steve, uh, one of the pastors here. Been gone for, man, it's been a while. I think the last time I preached in the pulpit here was at Christmas time. So it's been a while. And uh, the plan was to take about five weeks off after Christmas and just relax and take basically the whole month of January off. There's five Sundays in January. And and our plan was I had a backpacking trip to go to. I had a uh, camping trip that I had scheduled. I had plans to get away with my wife to get away and just enjoy some, some downtime. And in the beginning of January, we, had, we got just hit with so much weather, so much rain, that the trails got washed out. You guys remember that storm? It, it, yeah, everything got washed out. Couldn't get to the backpacking trails, couldn't get to the campsites. And then it just wasn't a good time to travel with my wife either. And then, and then um, in about the third week or so of January, my mother-in-law really started to suffer physically, and really started to go downhill, and um, she went into the hospital, and and, uh, and then on January 28th, she passed away. 23rd, yeah, January 23rd, she passed away, and uh, so just over a month ago, a lot of you knew Margaret. Margaret was one of the 12 people who helped to plant this church 20 years ago, and... Um, She's been just a delight and uh, a wonderful support over all of these years. Um, somebody said, it must have felt like you lost a mother. And I said, no, it's, it didn't feel like losing a mother. I've got, you know, my mom. But it felt like I lost a really good friend. So before I even met Jolene and Julie, um, before I married Jolene, I, I knew Margaret because she'd show up to Bennett Street, Foursquare, here around in town, and uh if you don't know, she was in a wheelchair. She got hit by a drunk driver 47 years ago. So she was a quadriplegic in a wheelchair for 47 years or her her life expectancy was five years. God, God had another plan. So <laughs> forget about what the experts say. God's got his plan. Right. And uh, so I would see her at the Foursquare church on Bennett street. And I would go over there just to help her into the, you know, with her chair and bring her into the sanctuary. So I was her friend before I was even connected with her daughters. I saw that she had her daughters with her and there were a couple of good-looking blonde ladies, you know, with her. But, um, but my, my focus was Margaret, just getting her into the, the, the chapel and that sort of thing. And so, anyway, so it's been really hard. You know, we've been neighbors together. We've been uh, neighbors living next door for 28 years. And so we'd see her all the time, you know, like every single day. Even when we didn't want to see her, we'd see Grandma, you know. <laughs> and uh, so... <clears throat> You know, with her absence, as you, and a lot of you have experienced the same thing with the loss. You know, it's just a big old hole in your in your life. You know, and uh, the kids and the grandkids are all lamenting and grieving the loss there. So, been very very difficult season. But I just want to say thank you though to you guys. I was actually supposed to come back a couple weeks ago, and the elder said, "Hey, why don't you take a couple more weeks off?" They actually told me to take another month off, and I said, "Well, I maybe do a couple more weeks." And so, thanks for. uh just your patience while I've been away. But everything, honestly, went so well while I was gone, um, I began to wonder, do I need to come back, right? <laughs> and so I check in with the Lord. Lord, is it like time for me to be done? And I, I'm here today, so that means I've got some wind left in the sails. Yeah, Paul, do you have a question? Marv, Marv yeah. So, yeah, good question. Marv, so my father-in-law um, um, has been struggling as well. Um, He's 88 years old, four bouts of cancer, um, just struggling at the end of his life, you know. And so, uh, we're dealing. It's just been a lot, you know. I'm leaving this week to go uh, do my aunt Sharon's memorial service. She passed away around the same time my brother-in-law passed away. So it's just been interesting. So, anyway, it's just been a taxing time. So, the the hope was that I'd come back all fired up and excited and full of life and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I'm honestly coming back more tired than when I left. But I was sharing that with, with Jolene this morning. She said, you know, when we're weak, God is strong. And so, uh, so I just have to, we just have to just know that God's in all of this. And he's faithful through every season of life. And so, honestly, we've seen his faithfulness in sustaining us through all of this hard stuff, you know. And when you've been through hard stuff, and I know everybody has, you just, you when you draw close to the Lord, you just sense his peace and his presence and his strength. And you guys have been a part of that as you've called and sent cards and brought meals and uh, just have been a general sense of encouragement and prayer support. You guys, have, you guys have been an amazing support to us. And so we're so thankful. We love each and every one of you. So grateful for the body of Christ that is assembled here at Harvest Church and so grateful for what he will do and grateful to keep marching on. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're in a brand new series today. The guys wrapped up um, 2 Peter, and now we're in, um, where are we at? 1 John. I should, I was, that was a test. Because we're going chronologically through the New Testament. So somebody asked me, are we going to get to the revelation before the rapture? I said, I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. I hope, like, the rapture takes us out of here, snatches us away. But um, hey, so it's family Sunday. I feel like I'm all over the place. Family Sunday. So what's the tradition on family Sunday? Jokes. Jokes. So most of you know that my favorite dessert is ice cream. And I wonder if you know what a cat's favorite dessert is. Nope. Mice cream. (laughs) You were so close. So close. You know, as a kid, we played hide and seek and I had an amazing hideout, a place to hide in the dryer. I would, everybody else would hide under beds and behind sofas and that sort of thing. I would fold myself up and get inside the dryer drum and then nobody would find me and sooner or later I'd have to kick the door open find find my way out. And surprise, do you know why? Do you know why you can never find an elephant hiding in a tree? Because he is so good at it. Let me say it again. I kind of warmed you up a little bit when I said I was very good at hiding in the dryer and nobody could ever find me. So do you know why you can never find an elephant hiding in a tree? Because he's just so good at it. You can't see him because he's such a good hider. All right, good. So that's enough of that. All right, so again, we're, bringing, we're starting a brand new series today in First John. So as we march through the New Testament, we find ourselves here. Did it finally just dawn on on you? So I was reading those jokes last night, and that one hit me. I'm like, this is a joke that I really appreciate. Apparently, my sense of humor is way different than your <laughs> sense of humor. So we're going to be studying 1 John today and uh, just kind of recapping the five chapters uh, before we jump into it. Um, and then we'll jump into chapter one today. And I think there's like 10 verses or so. We'll, so we'll get through all of that. But so John, the apostle, the beloved disciple wrote first John, he wrote first John, second John, third John, he wrote the gospel of John. And then he wrote, like we've been talking about the book of the revelation. So he, um, he wrote this about eighty five, ninety five AD. So John was very old. Don't know exactly how old he was, but imagine he started following Jesus around 20-ish. Most of the disciples were young men when they called, followed the the call or answered the call to follow Jesus. They say, the theologians say that John was probably the youngest of the twelve. And so by the time he wrote this, he was a pretty old man. And so To everyone in the room who considers themselves too old to be used by God, know that John the Apostle, into his old age and up till the very end, was being used radically in radical ways for the King of Kings, answering the call to follow Jesus. He never timed out until he took his last breath. He never stopped until God was done with him. I say this all the time. If you have a pulse, you have purpose, right? If you're warming a seat, then you got stuff to do for the kingdom. When God's done with you, then you won't have a pulse. You'll do this and you'll be like, you're, you, don't, you won't find anything, right? So if you can do this, go ahead and do that with me. Go ahead, just play along. Ken, go ahead. Ken's like, I'm not playing your game. Did you find your pulse? No. Oh, come on. <laughs> oh, there goes that illustration. So this epistle, and when I say epistle, the word just means letter. So John wrote this letter to the churches. This was written in about 85, 95 AD, and he, he was written from the city of Ephesus where witchcraft and idolatry was rampant, and the church was beginning to get sucked into the culture of the world. I feel like we should pray before I keep going. So Lord, we just invite your presence. God, as we open up the scripture, I pray that you you would open up our hearts and minds to this understanding. I pray that you would help me to communicate with clarity, God, that I would get out of the way and just allow your spirit and your word to do what your spirit and your word do. So God, we humble ourselves before you. We say, God, we want this truth. We want to hear your word. We give you this time in Jesus name. Amen. So this epistle was written from the city of Ephesus where witchcraft and idolatry were rampant. And the church began to get sucked into the culture of the world. In Acts chapter 19, we read about many who became believers and confessed their sinful practices. A number of them have been practicing sorcery. And when they heard the gospel, they repented, and upon their repentance, they brought their incantation books to the city square to light them on fire, to the tune of burning up hundreds or millions of dollars worth of sorcery books. These guys got radically saved, and because they got radically saved, they got radically, radically transformed, and because they got radically transformed, they were willing to burn up millions, several million dollars worth of books. Did you know that our culture is not too far behind or we might be right in step with the culture of Ephesus of 2,000 years ago? How many watched the Grammys this year? Good. good. I'll just say good. So Sam Smith, who wrote a song called Unholy, performed it in what is equivalent to a demonic worship experience. You can Google it. I don't encourage you to do it. But Sam Smith wrote and performed this crazy, crazy godless song in such a, uh, such a demonic way that it, that it, would, it would cause your, your skin to crawl. I, I read the lyrics of the song, Unholy, and I could only get through about half of it, and my stomach was turning. I couldn't finish listening to it. But this is the cult. This is why the cult. So you may not have watched the Grammys, but I, trust me, a lot of the culture watched the Grammys and were exposed to that kind of thing. So I don't think our culture is too far behind what was going on in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. Do you recall in Acts chapter 19 that the trouble that Paul encountered in Ephesus, the gospel was so effectively converting people that the local silversmith, Demetrius, who made his living manufacturing silver shrines to the Greek goddess Artemis, he was losing money because at the conversion rate, people were converting to Christianity and no longer in need of these shrine statues, these Artemis statues to this this female god that they had been worshiping. This worship of Artemis was so prominent in the city of Ephesus, but there was actually a temple erected to her that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was something that people from cultures and cities from around the world would come to to visit and experience. It was a very big deal. But the gospel, (laughs) the gospel was changing lives and changing everything in that city and in that region. It reminds me of what happened in this state, especially in the 70s during the Jesus movement. How many remember what happened in the 70s when the Jesus movement took hold of this state and radically reshaped the states? We think, man, what can we do about California? <laughs> we need to somehow see God do something radically in his people, including us, so that we might see something radical happened in our state, once again, for the purposes of the kingdom. There's actually a movie called uh, Jesus Revolution. Um, it's, it's playing today. It's a, basically Greg Laurie. Pastor Greg Laurie from Harvest Church in Southern California. Did you know that's how Greg Laurie got the name of his church from Harvest Church in Arroyo Grande? Did you guys know that? <laughs> that is absolutely not the truth, but it's always fun... People ask us, hey, did you name your church after Greg Laurie's church? I said, absolutely not. We just It was just a name that we chose. But um, anyway, so Greg Laurie uh, in this film just kind of tells the story about what happened in the Jesus Revolution. So uh, somewhere in town, I couldn't figure out where, but at around 1 o'clock, 1250, there's the Jesus Movement movie that's playing. So I just encourage you to go watch it. I haven't seen it. I don't know if it's any good, but go, go check it out. Was it good. Worth watching? All right. So go check it out. Go check it out. Allow us just to kind of fire you up again about what Jesus might do in our culture if we just give him permission to do what he wants to do in our culture. So something radical was happened in the city of Ephesus. But as time went on, some began to grow cold in their faith. And so roughly 20 years after these events that we read about in Acts chapter 19, John is writing to the church. She's writing to encourage the believers with truth and to challenge them to live as people of God in a corrupt culture. These truths were communicated to help believers gain clarity concerning their faith. We will have the best opportunity to impact our culture if we've got clarity about what we believe. If we are convoluted in our understanding and and, and lack clarity. We will never be salt and light in our culture the way that God has called us to be salt and light in our culture. I'm 53 years old, and I'm watching the culture change quicker in these last number of years than I've seen in my whole life. It's radical. So much so that a, a few months ago, right before the beginning of this year, I was at a staff meeting with my team, and I said, hey, guys, we gotta begin to do some things differently as a church and as a team. And we gotta begin to identify what's going on in the culture, like by name. We need to begin to challenge what is happening within the culture and address it by name and then begin to equip the church to have answers so that when we're up against difficult cultural things, we know how to respond to it. We'll unpack that as we go. John is addressing what's going on within the culture. He's writing 1 John because of what's going on in the culture. He understands what is going on in Ephesus firsthand. He's seeing it and he's writing to challenge the church. And so let's recap each chapter of 1 John. Chapter one is John's personal testimony to the validity of the eternal incarnate Christ who is salvation. And with that salvation, Christ is the one who brings great joy. And so as we read John's letter in the first chapter, in the first opening verses, we see that John had a real-life encounter with the living God. Chapter 2 is John's instruction to believers regarding personal holiness. John also reassures that if sin is committed, God's grace is sufficient because Christ is our propitiation. He has atoned for the sins of humanity. So he's challenging people in their personal purity and righteousness, but he's also coming with grace and saying, But if you stumble, there's hope for you. 1 John 2 1 and 2 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the atonement for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And in this chapter, John also warns about false teachers. Chapter 3 in John's, is John's encouragement to God's beloved children to abide in him and to keep themselves righteous. 1 John 3, 6, and 7. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. If you're struggling with sin in your life, this is how you avoid sin. This is how you get victory over sin by abiding in Christ and having him abide in you. No one who abides in him in Christ keeps on sinning. So, uh, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. FYI, journey groups are starting in March. Every March, journey groups get kicked off. And so if you've never been a part of a journey group, it's basically a discipleship process that helps men and women to abide in Christ. So it's a a discipleship process that encourages and equips men and women to abide in Christ so that we can live with greater purity, greater clarity, and greater understanding as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Uh, we've got information about journey groups uh, available. If you're interested, just let us know. It happens all over the Central Coast. And for that matter, it happens really all over the state and through the vast part of the country. Uh, These journey groups are uh, getting kicked off here in March. So uh, 1 John 3 also challenges us to love one another. Listen, as we address the culture, we have to address the culture with love. So we need to love one another within the body of Christ. But then As we go into the culture and confront the culture, we need to do it with great compassion and with great love. Anytime Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his day, he did so so that they might repent. Not because he wanted to be right, although he was right. He was hoping for brokenness and contrition. That was his heart came to seek and to save those who were lost. 1 John 3.11 says this, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. 1 John 4, John warns of false prophets, false teachers, people who claim to speak for God but who do not. He continues with a reminder, as in chapter 3, to love because love proves that we belong to God. Do we we hear that? Love actually proves that we belong to God. How we define love is an altogether different conversation. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says this, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And in 1 John 5, John reminds his Christian readers of the life transforming foundational truth of the gospel. He gives them assurance of their salvation. Do you know in Christ, we, in Christ, those who are in Christ, we're the only ones in of every religious system, for whatever you want to call it, a relig- we're the only ones who actually have assurance of salvation because of Christ. We are told in 1 John that we have assurance that God guarantees our salvation when we put our faith and trust in him. Every other faith in the world, they're all hoping for the very best, but they don't have any confidence. Listen, when we have confidence that we are born again, that we're new creatures in Christ Jesus, we move forward with greater boldness and clarity to be salt and light in the earth. And so it's no wonder that the enemy is always working to discourage us and to hinder our ability to fully believe. Like, I can't believe that God would love me. I'm such a wretch. He came to save a wretch like you and a wretch like me. This is what, he didn't come for those who were well, who didn't need a doctor. He came for those who were in need of a physician. And so that's why he came so that we might know. And this is the testimony, 1 John 5, and 12. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whosoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. And so John wants his believing readers to know clearly that they are saved. First John 5, 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So if you're ever wondering, do I have eternal life? And you've already given your life to Jesus, don't, don't sweat, don't, don't entertain those thoughts. Just say, you know what? I'm going to live a life of brokenness and contrition, repentance before the Lord, trusting that he's got me covered by his grace. And so if we live in a place of constant brokenness and contrition, we can be sure that God is the Lord of our life and that we're moving forward as saved saints, people who have been adopted into the family of God. Okay, that's the summary of each chapter of 1 John. So let's jump back to chapter 1 for the balance of our study for today. The title of today's message, Confident Clarity Concerning Our Faith Leads to Joy, dot, 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 and so much more. This is why it's so important that we have clarity and confidence about who we are in Christ, because if we do, we will indeed be salt and light. It will just be a natural Part of who we are in our lives. The fruit of our lives will be salt and will be salty and filled with light, and people will want to hear because of our lives. They reflect the work and the purposes of Christ. And so God does wonderful things. Confident clarity concerning our faith leads to joy. John, and you can tell as we get into 1 John chapter 1, you read it and you can just tell he believes what he's talking about. It's not like a religious exercise, you know? But he's writing from his experience under the unction, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit as God speaks to him and brings things to memory. He's jotting them down for our edification so we might be built up in our most holy faith. John had a confident clarity concerning his faith because he experienced the living God. So number one, a genuine experience with God will give you joy. That's the promise from scripture. A genuine experience with God will give you joy. Now there's days when we don't have a lot of joy because circumstances get hard, right? But when we come under the lordship and leadership of Christ and say, God, I'm, I just need your help. I can't tell you how many times I've said that over the course of the last couple months. Lord, I just need your help. And then there's strength. And then there's grace. And with that strength, and with that grace there's this joy that's unexplainable and full of glory it's just this powerful thing that God does The apostle John was an old man when he wrote this letter We're not sure exactly but I think he's pushing triple digits Is that old like is <laughs> like 85 old no, no. Yes it is <laughs> We have to have a wake-up call, right? Like at some point in our lives, we, we stop being young, right? And then we move to like middle age, and then we're just flat old, right? And it's okay because in our, our culture would say you're old, you're washed up. And in the scripture, says that old people actually have something to offer, and we see that throughout the scripture. And so if you're, you need to embrace it. I mean, I'm not there yet. it won't be there for a long time, but... <laughs> But you, <laughs> you need to embrace it and just see what the Lord will do. So John was an older guy, um, 80, 90, 100, I don't know. And it was years earlier as a young man that he hearkened the call to follow Jesus. He was probably a teenager, maybe late teens, early 20s, when he first walked with Jesus. And now a man close to his, to his death, he still believes. John's genuine experience with his Savior, had staying power for literally decades, decades and decades, all the way till the end of his life. You know, John was the only apostle to die peacefully. (laughs) Listen to what he wrote as he got old. Here we go. John had a genuine experience with God, 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, speaking of Christ. That word beginning means that by which anything begins to be the origin, the active cause. We see the same word in Matthew chapter 19, verse four, when Jesus talks about marriage. Matthew 19, four says, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is a reference to Genesis chapter two, when God both created and defined marriage. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So we see from scripture that God created the institution of marriage. The culture wants to hijack the institution of marriage like it was their idea. Marriage is God's idea from the very beginning he created it, and he defines it. It's between one man and one woman. And so when the culture tries to redefine what marriage is, we need to have clarity about the origins of marriage so that we can help them to understand that it wasn't the world's idea for marriage. It's being hijacked by the world, but it was God's plan. The world always hijacks God's plan. The enemy's not creative. He just is a good copycat. The enemy's always trying to dilute and confuse about God's plans. So an authentic marriage is between one man and one woman. The culture will tell you something very different. And listen, when we confront the culture about these things, we need to make sure that we're doing it with a heart of love and compassion. We need to do it with the desire to see people's lives changed and transformed, just like Jesus would challenge those who are confused or lost or misunderstood. He would challenge them in a gracious way so that they might have their lives turned around and they might understand truth. So verse one again, that which was from the beginning, Christ, the origin, the active cause, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, (laughs) which, which we have seen, with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. What is John saying? (laughs) John is talking about his real life, intimate experience with Jesus the Lord. They heard with their own ears. John's speaking about himself, but he's also speaking about the, the 12. And he's also speaking about all those first generation believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They actually heard him with their own eyes, they, or with their, <laughs> with their own ears. They saw him with their own eyes and they touched with their own hands. They encountered the incarnate Christ. The encounter was so real that each of the 12 were willing to be killed for what they witnessed and believed. They believed it because it was true. and Because it was true, they were willing to die for that truth. All of the 12, except John, was martyred for their faith they tried to kill John, but God had other plans for him. According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, John, the beloved disciple, was brother to James the Great. The churches of Smyrna, Pergamus, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Thyatira were founded by him, by John. We'll see those cities listed again when we start our study in Revelation chapter 1. From Ephesus, he was ordered to be sent to Rome, where it is affirmed he was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil. (laughs) He escaped by miracle without injury. Remember the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, into the fiery furnace? They come out, they don't even smell like smoke. John, the apostle, goes into this cauldron of boiling oil escapes without injury, miracle upon miracle. Domitian afterwards banished him to the island of Patmos. That was interesting. The island of Patmos is where John wrote the revelation. He wrote what we will be studying and what people, generations have studied for the last 2,000 years. You think God was involved in John's life? Like God was strategically arranging things and circumstances so that John might be where John needed to be. You think you're here in this culture by accident? You're not here in this culture by accident. You're here in this culture because you've got a responsibility. You've got things to do challenging the, the culture and being salt and light in this culture. John understood even as an old guy that he had work to do, wrote these epistles as well as the book of Revelation, Nerva, the successor of Domitian, recalled him and he was the only apostle who escaped a violent death. As he writes this, he's probably the last of the 12. People believe that he was the youngest of the 12 and they tried to kill him. God had plans for him. You know, my mother-in-law, I think I said this, but when she got hit by a drunk driver 47 years ago and she became a quadriplegic, the doctor said, you got five years to live. What are the doctors now? <laughs> Listen, when God's got a, per- a plan for your life, you got a- as many breaths as the Lord wants you to have. right? So for 47 years, she just did the work of the Lord. Back to 1 John 1, verse 2. The life was made manifest, speaking of Christ. Speaking of the incarnation, the life, Jesus, was made manifest in the incarnation. And we have seen it. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This same John wrote in the Gospel of John, something very similar in John 1.14. He said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle Paul wrote about the Incarnation. You're going to hear in a moment why this writing about the Incarnation was so critical and so important to the first century church. The Apostle Paul wrote about the Incarnation in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason— That in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul wrote again in Philippians 2, verse 8, And being found in human form... He humbled himself, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This truth was written to counter the false teachings of esoteric and Gnostic theories that were floating around in the culture. Esoteric refers to secret traditions or knowledge reserved for a few and they require an initiation to learn or understand. So esoteric theories were floating around in the culture then and throughout since then. Then the Gnostics considered material existence flawed or even evil and held the principal element of salvation to be direct knowledge of the hidden divinity attained via mystical or esoteric insight. So it's no wonder that the enemy is trying to undermine the reality of the incarnation that Jesus, the God-man came to live, to die, to seek and to save those who are lost and that the world, the religious system of the world would try to confuse you about the reality of that scenario. The enemy's always about trying to confuse and undermine the truth of the scripture. And so that's why we need to constantly open the scripture every day. Just keep opening the scripture. Keep opening the scripture and reminding yourself of what the truth is. Many Gnostic texts deal not in concepts of sin and repentance. Why? Because the enemy doesn't want you dealing with sin and repentance. The enemy doesn't want you thinking about sin and repentance, but with the illusion and enlightenment just kind of floaty out there, you can't really get your hands around it. But when we're confronted with sin and our need to repent, that becomes very real and very tangible in our lives. And so John writes, Paul writes throughout the New Testament about the truth of the incarnation confronting the lies that were perpetuated throughout the culture. Jesus had a human body. Maybe you never cared to question that before. The enemy's trying to get people to question it all the time. Jesus had a human body, and Jesus came to save all. Not all will be saved, but the truth and the offer of salvation was and is to all people. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. True Christian fellowship combines social and spiritual transactions, and it is made possible only through a living relationship with Christ. God died, sent his son to die for you so that you might have fellowship with him, so that you might be adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God, having fellowship with one another as believers, but then also with the Lord himself. Verse four, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Some manuscripts read so that your joy may be complete. I think both are true. When we write these things and believe these things and proclaim these things, our joy is complete and we help others find that same joy. Why is joy connected to this truth that John is explaining? Because this truth, this life, This person, Jesus, the incarnate one came that we might have life, abundantly so, joyfully so. So the enemy will work to uh, hinder us and our believing so that we don't fully enjoy the life that God has called us to fully enjoy. When we're fully enjoying the life and the relationship that God has called us to, the joy that he supplies is unspeakable and full of glory. Jesus the incarnate one incarnate one came that we might have life abundantly so joyfully so Jesus the eternal one entered time and space because he loves you Jesus the creator of the universe created an opportunity to live with peace and harmony and yes joy with him because in Christ and in Christ alone, our sins are forgiven and we are adopted into his family forever. A genuine experience with God will give you joy, number one. Number two, a genuine experience with God will flood your life with lights. Well, this statement doesn't sound like a big deal unless you've experienced real darkness and real hopelessness. And I would venture to say that most of us in the room have experienced real darkness and real hopelessness. Due to loss, all kinds of things. I don't know about you, but when I step out the back of my house, open the slider and step out, and when the when the, the moon's not out and the cloud cover is blocking any stars, it is pitch black. And I, I get out there and I've lived in this property for twenty-eight years, but I still find it unsettling that I can't see my hand in front of my face. There's something very unsettling about that. Listen, without the truth and the light of the gospel, this is how people are living. They're living in total darkness and it's our privilege and our opportunity to help them as we have been helped with the gospel in our own lives. It's our privilege and our responsibility to to help others see the lights. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. As I try to explain what hell will be like to people, I say, imagine an existence where there's absolutely no light ever. You're in, and this is just scratching the surface of what it will be like. It's total darkness, hopelessness, it's total despair. Daniel and Solvi talk about the suicide rates during the dark seasons when they were on the mission field. and, And they talked about the suicide rate and how it changed when they would go and as missionaries in Greenland be salt and light in their community. They said when they're there, suicide does not happen. As soon as they leave, they get hit with information about suicides that are taking place in the village that they were serving and ministering in. Our light is real and life-changing. It is our responsibility to be salt and light in our culture. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Let me read that again. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Agreement with the world is walking in darkness. What does it mean to be in agreement with the world? I'm going to hit a few hard issues. We've got Lifeline with their table up with their baby bottles, their annual baby bottle drive. Why? Because they're trying to save lives. Because they believe like we believe, that abortion is a major problem within our culture. Now, I know there's people in the room who have been touched by abortion. Either you've had an abortion or you've been touched by someone in your family who's had an abortion. I have, and my heart is filled with compassion. But it doesn't mean that we don't stop telling the truth about abortion because we want to stop others from feeling the the devastation of the effects of abortion in our own Lives And so we, by God's grace, we speak the truth in love and we support Lifeline and other ministries like that so that they can be salt and light to people who are experiencing unplanned pregnancies. Being okay with abortion, it's walking in darkness. Being okay with a gay agenda is walking in darkness. Now I've got friends who struggle with same-sex attraction and it's my heart to love them and to serve them and help them to understand the truth. But my love for them and wanting them to be delivered from that and to see a different way forward is not to con- affirm and confirm what they're doing but to speak the truth in love. The culture would say if you not only don't just agree with me but if you don't celebrate me then you're opposed to me. It's darkness. Being okay with a gay agenda is walking in darkness and in agreement with the world. Being okay with transgender, transgender confusion is agreement with the world and walking in darkness. The Bible says that God is not the author of confusion. So if God is not the author of confusion, then who is the author of confusion? The enemy of our soul is the author of confusion. So the enemies from the beginning is confused truth, Confuse us about truth, confuse us about who we are, confuse us about how we about how we're to live our lives. And so, as a church, we have to address these things within the culture. If we are not, as the church, addressing these things in the culture with love and with grace, nobody is. And it's a slippery slope. The church has the responsibility to influence the culture. We have to stand up. I heard recently that there are three enemies of success. Three enemies of success. When I talk about success, I'm talking about the church successfully encountering the world and speaking truth and being salt and light. Number one is the comfort zone. I don't want to address that issue because it's way too uncomfortable for me. I don't want to have that conversation because it's way too uncomfortable for me. So. Uh, as Westerners, especially, we want to stay in that comfort zone. We like, we like having our house and our clothes and our meals. And we like having all of, all of those things that we enjoy in this culture, and especially on the Central Coast, the beautiful place that we live in. So we want to stay nestled in that comfort zone. But listen, God has called us out of the comfort zone so that we might be on the front lines of ministry doing what God has called us to do, being salt and light. So the comfort zone will keep us quiet on these issues. Number two is learned helplessness. Learned helplessness. We think there's no way that I can affect change. I'm absolutely helpless to affect change regarding these issues. And that is absolutely a lie. We wonder how the 12 got the message out to the whole world. It was through one person at a time, one relationship at a time, one person using their gifts at a time. Learned helplessness, it's a tool of the enemy to keep us hand-tied and mouths closed. And then number three, it's the path of least resistance. And they're all kind of go together. The path of least resistance is, ah, if I have that conversation, the relationship's going to be weird. (laughs) If I talk about that, I'm going to be seen as maybe as an outcast or as one of those crazies. The path of least resistance keeps us on the path of least resistance, where we're not having people question what we believe or challenge what we believe, and we're not asking or challenging or questioning what others believe. We need people, conservative Christians, who are willing to be in the public arena. We need Christians, conservative Christians, who are willing to be on public, uh, public school boards. It's Great that we're on Christian school boards or serving in Christian, within the realm of the Christian world, but we actually need to be salt and light in the public school where decisions are being made about the curriculum that is being taught to our kids and to our grandkids. And we will never affect change. And we don't even honestly have a right to be angry about it unless we're willing to do something about it. So we need people who are saying, I am done sitting on the sidelines, I'm ready to join the battle and join the battle where it's really gonna make the biggest difference. And so joining a public school board, running for public office. We've got a city council that's, a few of them are my friends, but but they're liberal, godless liberal people who are taking us down a path of destruction in our little city. And it's happening in all the cities around us. We can't be mad about it if we're not willing to do anything about it. And so somebody, maybe multiple people need to be running for city council, running for mayor. We need to be changing the course of the direction of our culture and our community by getting involved. We need conservative Christians who are willing to speak the truth in love, not just in the political arena, but with your neighbors and with your friends and with your family. You need to be willing to speak the truth in love. If we're not careful, we will get sucked. If we're not careful, we also will get sucked into the culture. We have a local Christian leader in our community who's been sucked into the culture. His son just got a record deal. I think they call him record deal steal still, but uh, he got a, he's a rapper, an upcoming rapper, and got a big record deal where he's rapping about all kinds of illicit Uh, Inappropriate, (laughs) sinful behavior, and his Christian leaders in the community, parents, are celebrating his demise, his downward spiral, as he, as a young, young boy, is singing uh, using profanity and, and all kinds of, celebrating all kinds of illicit and sinful behavior. Where do we stand up? in our families and in our culture. When do we say enough is enough? By God's grace, we have the power of the spirit of God and the power of the word of God within us and we're equipped to do what God has called us to do, but we have to do something that God has called us to do. It's no wonder the church is in decline. Verse seven, first John one, but if we walk in the light as yes, he is in the light, we have fellowship. With one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. Number one, a genuine experience with God will give you joy. Number two, a genuine experience with God will flood your life with light. And number three, a genuine experience with God will bring about your repentance. And I'm not talking about your initial repentance where you repented and gave your life to Jesus and became a son or a daughter of God. But I'm talking about your current <laughs> current repentance where you're saying, I need to repent of my my, my lack of, uh, of involvement in the culture where I'm actually making a difference in being salt and light in this community. We need to repent of our reasons, the path of least resistance. We don't want to ruffle feathers. We don't want to go against the tide. Listen, somebody needs to go against the tide. Jesus, the 12 in the early church, went against the tide. Verse 8, 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, confessing our sin, repenting of our sin, means actually taking a different path. I've been on this path, uninvolved, unwilling to be salt and light. I'm no longer going to be on that path. I'm going to do what God is asking me to do. Now, not all of us are gonna be called to go into politics or city council or whatever, but some of us are. And if you are, all of us are gonna be called to, into the battle, into the fray, every one of it. If you call yourself a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what it means. You're gonna go make a difference in your culture and in your community. That's just what it means. It doesn't mean anything else. It doesn't mean joining a church doesn't mean being part of a club. It means you're in the army of God, doing what God has called you to do. That's what it means when you, that's what you signed up for. Jesus, when he called his disciples, he said, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So Jesus is telling you, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. You won't be fishers of men unless you're willing to engage the culture. You won't be doing what God has called you and saved you to do unless you're willing to engage the culture in a loving and gracious way with truth So some of us need to repent and then begin down the path that God has called you down. So with that, let's go ahead and stand. And we're gonna invite the worship team and uh, then we're gonna wrap up. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Thank you that you are salt and light and you have called us to be salt and light. We love you, Lord. We wanna do what you've called us to do. So show us what the next step is. Help us not to wait till next week, but to get on it, doggone it. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.